Christmas and the Flow of Kingdom Hope, part two. First John, chapter one, four verses. John writes and says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I sometimes think we don't think about how hard it is to believe what we're celebrating. Where if you hadn't heard this a million times, John is saying, God. You know how philosophers have their five arguments for the existence of God? That God. The God who created the solar systems. The almighty Jehovah God that no one has seen. John comes on the scene and here's what he says. I ate fish with God on the beach. I heard God talk to me in Aramaic. I touched God's hand. That God, the one philosophers try to prove the existence of John says, I ate fish with him. I would submit to you, it is far easier to believe Santa squeezes down a chimney on Christmas. That's way easier to believe than God ate fish with the Apostle John on the beach. It's just that we hear it so many times. We sang about it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. Hail the incarnate Deity, we sang it. No wonder John feels like he has to labor at proclaiming this over and over again. The truth, if only we weren't familiar with it, it's it's stunning to say that. Most Christians maybe don't know that in all likelihood, John wrote this letter that we read our text from after his experience on the island of Patmos. Because of the order of the books in the Bible, we think that must be the last thing in John's life. It's generally believed that after he wrote about his revelation, he was released from imprisonment by the Romans, returned probably to Ephesus, and finally wrote 1 John near the very, very end of his life. So, at about the age of 90, he writes this letter to newly formed early churches scattered around Asia Minor. And we should bear in mind that as John writes this letter, his heart is 
still pretty freshly stirred by this great vision of the dramatic events at the close of world history, at the end of the age. So he, he writes about the importance of Christ's first coming as he freshly ponders the second coming that he saw so vividly. So these two comings, that's Advent, means coming. These two comings of Jesus are part of one proclamation for John. What that does is it presses urgency into his words. He's got the whole picture in mind. Our text is not the gentle musings of cold doctrine and theology. John's John's cranium is on fire with the second coming wonder and urgency. He's keenly aware of the unbreakable link between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming to close this world's history. Something else. John's lived long enough at the age of 90 to see how spiritual passions can cool and wane. Not everyone sees the things John saw in his vision on Patmos. There's there's kind of a mental dullness that comes so easy to most of us, even if truth isn't denied. We're also prone to doubt. Trials wear us down. Imagine, imagine for a minute how the early church must have felt as she began to witness gradually the death of all those apostles from whom they have received so much. The ministry of these apostles had brought many of these Christians to the Lord. Now as time wore on, their leaders were all beginning to die off. None of the things they had said about the second coming of Jesus had happened. None of them. So a sense of discouragement could settle in on their souls. I mean, we're not immune to that. This this sense of spiritual inertia, you have to labor against that. Look at all the fallen spiritual leaders. Look at the spiritually declined Christians you might know. Look at all the deconstructors pretending that honest people can't know the truth. All of this is driving the words of our Christmas text. In the first three verses, John lays the foundation of all that will follow. Here are the points. One, the message John has is a proclamation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We've seen it, testify to it, and and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Two times. In three verses, John uses that that, uh, news broadcaster's term, proclaim. We proclaim to you, verse 2. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, verse 3. So John clearly has 
an announcement. He wants people to know he's not dealing in mysticism. He's not dealing in speculation. He's not sitting in some cathedral with stained glass windows and candles writing poetry and... No. This announcement of the gospel, it confronts both the mystical confusion and the quest for absolute truth in our age. I'm convinced the strategy of the spirit of the age is not to deny the claims of the Christian faith. I don't think that's the strategy at all. Rather, it's to reduce the New Testament message to one of many different options. Very subtly, Christian revelation is discussed by our world as though it were nothing more than a helpful, positive product of one's own mind, a series of moral insights and aspirations put into pleasant-sounding speech, positive life principles. We usually end up referring to Christians, like all other people in all other religions, as people of faith as though it was the inward process of the mind rather than the object of the faith to start with. This is the broad-minded, tolerant approach to appeasing all religions equally. That way, you don't embrace any passionately above the other. And in giving equal credibility to all religions and teachings, and after all, who doesn't want to be tolerant, our world has efficiently silenced some of the unique claims of the Christian message. Hence, our text. This is John's proclamation. The Christian gospel confronts more than just unbelief. The Bible has far more to say about idolatry than atheism. So see the passion of John. I love this. He's about 90 years old. He's been loving and serving and following Jesus for a long time, and it's cost him plenty. It's been a bumpy road. He's been through the fire. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He's been exiled. Finally, finally, John, he's 90. He doesn't have a lot of time, but he's got one more kick at the can. He's got one more chance to proclaim his heart for Jesus. What are you going to say, John? He's quick to tell us. This isn't like Paul's letters. He doesn't start off, grace and peace to you. None of that. There's no dear friends. Not even this is a letter from your beloved John. Nope. He's just, he's just sprinting out of the starting gate. There's this underlying Christmas passion. There's, there's a proclamation that after all these years and everything he's gone through still burns in his heart and he cannot wait to get to it. Here's what he says, my words. I've seen something. You have to know about this. I know it for sure. I'm not crazy. I'm not delusional. This is still the most important thing I know. There are no equals to this. My message is about the Lord and from the Lord. God bless you, John. I'm not searching for truth. I found the truth, he says. 
He has come right here. We've seen Jesus. He came, God in the flesh. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. God, God forgive us. God forgive Cedarview Community Church for ever growing cold to just the wonder of Christmas revelation. The life of God was made manifest, he says. We have seen it. We have touched it with our hands. Forgive us, Lord, for ever making it speculative or ordinary or sentimental. Let me stay on this just for a second longer. I know it's just the first point. I'll make it up later. John is starting at the beginning. We'd have to be dull to miss his point. The church, the church is in the proclaiming business. She has a message to deliver. Paul said the same thing. 1 Corinthians 2.1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I mean, there's a place for lofty speech and human wisdom. You have political meetings where people put forward their ideas, usually with a professional speechwriter. You have scientific forums where people present varying theories. You have public forums where leaders try to find the pulse of the people, set forth a proposal that'll please the majority, get them elected, and keep people happy. Now, John says he's separating the church from all of that. The church doesn't live in those realms at all. She has a settled, revealed message. She doesn't invent it. She doesn't alter it. There's no voting on it. The word he uses, we proclaim. We proclaim. Point number two. Because the gospel message is a reliable declaration, it is violated and smudged by anything less than absolute trust and commitment. John, he, he, he puts it all in the opening three verses. That which we have heard, which we have looked upon with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which you have touched with our hands. You see a bit of repetition here? We've seen it. It was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. This really is terrible writing. I mean, how many times can you say the very same thing over and over in three sentences? What is John doing? He's making sure that in 2023, you and I don't miss the point. He's willing to risk the endless repetition. He's saying, don't ever get the idea that we were deceived. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think that we were deceived and don't ever think we just made stuff up for some kind of effect. And notice another very important point. Notice the number of times he says, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. What's he doing? He's saying, he's saying that all the apostles had the same experience with Jesus. Each could validate the other. This wasn't one person making something up. This is what all of the apostles experienced together. There were checks and balances. 
Other passages say the same thing in the New Testament. For, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is always the thrust of the New Testament. Let me say something that maybe around Christmas you might find shocking, I don't know. Don't come to Jesus and put your trust in him because of some feeling or mood or even need or vision or dream. Believe the message for one reason only. The New Testament says, believe it because because it's true. Don't come to Jesus because the gospel works. That's a terrible motive. The cults have worked for many people. Drugs work for others. Kabbalah works for Madonna. Scientology works for Tom Cruise. There are scores of ideologies and religions and philosophies that work, if by work you mean produce some kind of desired inward effect. You don't need Christianity for that. The shelves are creaking with all sorts. That's not the approach of John at all. John begins with this proclamation of the gospel of Christ, and he calls us to believe it, first of all, because it's absolutely true. I love this. John says, John says, we all saw Jesus come into this world with the same flesh and blood that we have. We saw him do what he did. We heard him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said it in Aramaic. We heard the words in Aramaic. No man comes to the Father but by me. We heard him say, I go to prepare a place for you and will come again and receive you unto myself. We saw him call Lazarus out of a grave near Bethany. We all heard him say in Aramaic, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So to all the scoffers and doubters, John would say, listen, I've given my life to this, John would say. I was there. Were you? I rested my head on his chest at the Passover celebration. Did you? I saw his hands in sight. I touched them when he came, resurrected out of the tomb. Did you? I hugged that scarred body. John is piling up words to make clear to us that what he declared, even though it seems too good to be true, too big to be true, it's not something he's guessing about. He knows what he's proclaiming thoroughly from the inside out. There's not a doubt in his mind. And his words are important because they urge all of us just to listen to the appeal of sane reason. In light of John's words, the testimony of the average doubter isn't worth very much. You'll hear lots of them. None of them were there. Will you listen to an eyewitness? Will you listen to a group of eyewitnesses? Or someone who gets everything third hand? So, 
The message is a revealed message we proclaim. Secondly, it's a trustworthy message backed by the apostolic testimony. And third, and in conclusion, the gospel message is a missionary declaration about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. There's something surprising in the text. I don't know if you noticed it. It's in three and four. It doesn't read the way it should read. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, okay, so that you too may fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the part. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Something striking about that. When you ponder it, I think you'll notice it's quite different from the way we promote the Christian message today. And here's what's different. John knows full well the power of Christ to change a life. He experienced it. John's gospel, by the way, says more about belief, faith, born again, than any other of the gospels. But strangely, it's not the way he introduces the gospel here. Surprisingly, He chooses to talk about the joy of proclaiming the gospel rather than the joy of receiving it, which is what I would have done. Notice again, he's not writing these things to make the joy of others complete, though it certainly will do that. He says to make his own joy complete, to make our joy complete, right there in that fourth verse. It's as though it's the sharing of the message that completed the joy of the message. We sing so often, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Maybe maybe we need to rethink, how does that joy come? What are joy's roots? That's what John is proclaiming in our Christmas text. Joy comes not just from knowing the Lord has come, precious for sure, but by proclaiming the Lord has come. One four, look at it, it's clear as a bell. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here's what I mean. Consider the Apostle John. He's had an incredibly rich heritage in the Lord. Think of what he could talk about having received from the Lord, John, at the age of 90. Think of all the things he could have talked about that the Lord had done for him. But there's no dissertation at all of those things here. Rather, he says, I I live to proclaim this God that I've seen and heard and touched with my hands. Jesus Christ has come There is no one else, and I am not able to rest until you know him, until you trust him, until you align your life with his. You can know Christ for sure. John says, that's my joy, if you'll know Christ like that. John is wearing his, what has Jesus done, bracelet. That's the glory of Christmas. An invisible God makes himself manifest, plain, 
visible, touchable. John says, we have handled the truth. We have something firmer than our feelings, bigger than our doubts. This is what makes the revelation of Christ incarnate, the Christmas revelation, such a damning thing to reject because we now know better. You've just heard what God has done to take you to heaven when you die. And it doesn't depend on some inward state of mind. John says this is knowable. It's historic. It's factual truth. Don't let your heart pretend it hasn't heard, John would say. Don't let your heart pretend it hasn't heard. There is nothing more precious and more joy-producing than knowing you have eternal life with certainty. And there is nothing better than that. There is nothing better that. John says, you can know. You can know Christ. 